So when I was a kid, I used to watch The Kids in the Hall on uh, Comedy Central a lot. It's a, a great old uh, Canadian sketch show. And they had this this one sketch they did. They did it a couple times, but it was a, a the, the sketch was called Premise Beach. And it was real short, you know, little, little uh, kind of one-liner type sketch. And the idea was just that they would sort of throw out a simple premise and then uh, demonstrate it in a, in a little, you know, 20 second sketch. So the one that, one that comes to mind was uh, the premise was what if a man ran for office who shouldn't have even bothered? And then the sketch was just Scott Thompson in a, a trench coat and a, a, a fedora talking to a couple of, of workers at a factory. And, and then he, he says, uh, well, gentlemen, I, I hope I can count on your votes. And then he extends his hand for them to shake. Uh, only instead of a hand, he just has a giant slab of wet, raw meat. And one of the workers sort of uh, cringes and, and takes it limply in his hand, and the other one just uh, declines. So obviously, if you are running for office, you have to shake hands a lot. And so uh, uh, as, the, as they go on to explain, a man with a meat hand shouldn't have even bothered. So th this came to mind today anyway, because I, I've been reading a lot of, I've been reading poems from sort of a few different sources lately. I've been reading, uh, started looking at this this uh, collected works. I, I've also I've also been kind of slowly going through slush pile work and, and this, this kind of a thousand year old anthology of Norse stuff. And then I also have been, you know, uh, dipping in and out of uh, a new and selected from a contemporary poet. And I, I think with a lot of these poems, there is a there's a lack of urgency w w with some of them that st sticks in my craw a little bit. So creative writing teachers, especially poetry teachers, are really fond of saying that you, know, you don't have to write about you know, obviously literary or dramatic or poetic topics. You can write about everyday life. You can write about seemingly mundane uh, subjects and and make uh, make real real you know art out of them. And, th and that's true. I mean, that's certainly true. Uh, uh, Theodore Grethke wrote about his his drunken father, and it's a you know it's a great poem. My Papa's Waltz. Uh, Thomas Hardy wrote about like a scrubby sort of unattractive little little bird and it's a, that's another great poem darkling thrush uh auden wrote about just taking a walk out outside his apartment down through the city one night as i walked out one evening and there there are you know any number of poems about various aspects of domestic life city life david bottoms has a pretty fucking good poem called turning the double play about a double play <laughs> gwendolyn brooks has a great poem called the bean eaters which is as as self self-explanatory great poem uh, Wendy Cope's got a great poem in her first collection that's just about a line in 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 the newspaper called Engineer's Corner. And David David Yezzy has a poem. Actually, maybe I'll read this one. David Yezzy has a terrific poem about watching a mom hit her kid at the grocery store. I can't remember the name of it. Called the Chain. Yeah, called the Chain. I maybe yeah, I should read that one. That's because that's really good, and I think a lot of people don't know it. All right, so. You can write a poem about anything. True. The creative writing teachers are right about that. But I think sometimes people take that 
truism and they they extrapolate from it a another conclusion that that doesn't that's not quite right which is that any competently finished poem regardless of what it might be about regardless of the impressiveness of its subject matter or its form uh, is is a worthwhile poem and that i think is not quite right so the, the the other thing that came to mind today was this this dumb game we played uh in in grad school not an original game this was just in a bar uh, i remember one night somebody asked if you if you were on a desert island and you could pick if you were on a desert island and you could pick one book of poems what would you pick it, it had to be lyric poems it couldn't be epic or dramatic uh or uh didactic i guess you couldn't uh, though i'm not sure who would pick a didactic who, I'm, not, I'm not sure who would pick manilius as his one book of poems maybe maybe hausman would but uh you 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 had to pick a book of lyric poems and I don't think there were any really great or memorable answers. I said the four quartets, which is not what I would say today. It's not a terrible answer. There was, there's certainly plenty. I could spend a lot of time reading the four quartets. There's still plenty I could stand to learn or figure out about it, but it's not what I would pick today. I think I was probably also trying to sound kind of impressive. I think somebody else picked the complete Adrian Rich, which again, not my cup of tea, but like, but that's fine. Fine answer. Okay. Uh, Stephen Campa said the temple, George Herbert's collected uh, book, his posthumous book of poems. Again, uh, George Herbert, not my favorite poet, but terrific poet. You know, major poet, important poet, and uh, and like you know, what dear to Stephen's heart in particular. So that was fine. Uh, by the way, just brief brief tangent. Stephen Campa, if you have not heard of him, is. Uh, is just an amazingly, amazingly talented. I mean, of like formal poets, my generation, he's, he might be the most gifted. I mean, he might be the best of the formal poets of my, my generation. Uh, he's certainly a fabulously skilled and talented poet, also terrific musician and a brilliant, brilliant critic brilliant poetry critic. I think maybe part of the reason that Stephen is not better known or more celebrated, he has a few books and, and he, he publishes things here and there. Uh, but I think part of the reason he's probably not really well known is just that he's totally uncool. Like he is in our age of like personal brands, his brand is super unsexy. He's just like a four square, boring, dorky, nice guy who just like happens to be sort of a genius when it comes to poetry, uh, which is, which is a, a shame though. I'm, uh, I am certainly glad that I, I, I'm glad that I know about him, even if not enough other people do. Uh, and if he hasn't, if I haven't sufficiently insulted him, then I, maybe I can get him on the show at some point because his poetry is great. He's just, sorry, Stephen, you're just not cool. Uh, neither was his choice of a desert Island poem, um, uh, book, book of poems, but that's fine. My, my my point with the whole desert island thing is not that our choices were interesting and it's not that it's a particularly interesting question but it is a i think it is in some ways a clarifying distinction but because you know as i read through these these books of books or or anthologies or submissions of poems I, you know, my thought is not that I want every single poem to be great, 
or grand or important or ambitious, right? I, I think that's that's also a little bit of a mistake. Setting aside the subject matter, I think it's a mistake to say like every time you write a poem, you should be trying trying to write something great, or you should be trying to write something important. I think that's that's misguided and probably leads to some, some sort of clunky, heavy-handed poetry. But the desert island thing is not really it's not the question with of a desert island poetry is not really the same as the question of, you know, what's the greatest book of poetry it's not quite the same thing because it's your desert island you're by definition the one person there and you know i appreciated what alice said the other day she you know she talked about the poem lucky by dorothy porter i, I read it. it's a good good poem we talked about it a little bit uh she, she said it's her favorite now i think it's a good poem I don't think it's the best poem I've ever read. I don't know that Alice would even say it's the best poem she's ever read, but it's her favorite, right? There's something about it that, that connects with her. She has a soft spot for it, right? I, I, I totally understand that, right? I have a soft spot for Katie Lederer's poem, which is it's just called Untitled, but the first line is it was the, it was the answer to a question. I, I don't know that I could really defend like feeling, but it's a feeling I have. Same thing with Joshua Beckman's uh, uh, Block Island. I don't know that it's a great poem, but it's a poem that I I love. I I know that uh, uh, probably Christopher McQuarrie's best movie is uh, The Usual Suspects, but I but but my favorite is his other his second movie, The Way of the Gun, which was a huge flop that everybody hated. I think it's great. I love it. I know that Ryan Felipe is not a very good actor, but it's a, I, I love that movie. So a favorite is an important distinction. It doesn't mean it's flawless. It doesn't mean it's important. It doesn't mean it's grand. But it means that it really gets its hook into somebody's heart. It really matters to somebody. And so that's sort of my, that's kind of my criterion, right? I mean, I'll tell you, like the the the, the book, is, the new and selected I'm reading in particular has sort of rubbed me the wrong way because it does what I think a lot of new and selecteds by contemporary poets do, which is which is this. So take a poet who's maybe 50 or so. This poet maybe has four or five books out. The selected or the new and selected will end up being almost the size of those previous books all combined, right? Which is to say that the difference between the selected poems and a theoretical collected poems is is marginal right if you were if you were taking 90 percent or even like 70 percent of a book and you including that in your selected then that is not a selected that's not a selection you're just you're just shaving off a couple of duds really your selected should be the best work you should be taking i mean i would say like you should be taking unless you're larkin or bishop or Hausman, like you should be taking no more than maybe like 30% of a given collection, especially if it's an early collection. Like you probably, most of that's dross. And like you go through a number of choices. Like you, you, you choose to sit down and try to write a poem. Who knows what's going to come out of that? You then go back and you say, well, is this worth revising? And then after you've done that and you've get, gotten to where you think that you're relatively happy with it, then you decide, well, is this worth publishing? Then once you've published it in a magazine, you have to decide, is this worth uh, putting in a collection? 
And at every point, there should be, you should be winnowing. At every point, there should be fewer and fewer poems left. And then you're, you should be selecting, you know, austerely what goes into your selected poems. And I think at every step, I think at every uh, phase of this process, with the exception of the first, because when you're sitting down to write a poem, who knows what's going to happen? I think just that's the point. That's when you say, let a, let a, a, a thousand flowers bloom, right? That, that's when you say, let's see what happens, right? But once you are deciding to publish something, then I think that the criterion you have to ask is not, is this about an appropriate poetic subject matter? Because that doesn't matter. I don't think it's even, is this a really great poem? Is this an immortal poem? Is this an ambitious poem or an important poem or a socially responsible poem? No, fuck that. Fuck all of that. You don't need to worry about any of that. Here's the criterion. Here's the Slee Ricketts poetic selection criterion. Here, here's the Matthew Buckley Smith standard for should you publish your poem? The, the one question you need to ask is could this poem be somebody's favorite? Could this poem hypothetically be anybody's favorite poem? Can you imagine that there could be a person who would read this and say, this is my favorite poem. I need to cut this out of the magazine and pin it to the wall above my desk and look at it every day. I fucking love this poem. Is there anybody you could imagine possibly feeling that way? Could it conceivably be somebody's favorite? Because if the answer to that is no, I mean, Jesus fucking Christ, then don't publish it. Because a poem that can't, could, could not even theoretically be anybody's favorite poem, that's a man with a meat hand. That's a, that's a poem that shouldn't even fucking Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Uh, thank you all for listening, as always, and thank you especially to those of you who've had a chance to go into iTunes or wherever you listen and uh, leave a rating, leave a review, uh, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already, or just recommend the show to somebody you think might like it. It does help other people to learn about this show that you are electing to listen to and thus presumably enjoy. Uh, I'm going to check my recording levels and see what's up. Okay. I, I think this is louder. I think this is pretty good. All right. So uh, it's going to be a little bit of a miscellany this week. I wanted first to respond to a really good email I got. I actually got it like a month ago, uh, almost or even more over a month, a month and a week, uh, and have been sitting on it <laughs> For reasons I will get to, but uh, this was this was a note from Varun, a new listener. Uh, with any luck, he's still listening. Uh, thank you, Varun. Thank you for your note. Uh, and and he did say that it was all right for me to discuss it. Uh, he wrote wrote a, wrote a couple different things. I'll just I'll start with this section and then um, skip around a little bit. So he he wrote, I really loved your discussion of because I could not stop for death. 
It's a tributary to a main theme running throughout Emily Dickinson's poems, that of the identity and or continuity of beginnings and endings. Her fascination with seasons, for example, one of her finest poems, read, one of my favorite poems of hers, is Further in Summer Than the Birds. Uh, so I read this poem. This is the reason it's taken me a long time to get to this <laughs> email, because, boy, this is a really hard poem. I I read it and read it and read it, and it, you know, if it were not for Varun's helpful uh, gloss and the longer, more explicit original version that I was able to find online, I mean, I would, I would really be able to make almost nothing of this poem. But at any rate, he, he goes on to say, the poem describes the chanting of crickets at the end of, of summer, except that summer has an end not for the crickets nor for the birds, but only for the speaker. Or rather, end means different things to crickets, birds, and Emily's. And because summer has an end, it is also the beginning of something else, namely the following season, which also ends and so begins ad infinitum. So he, he, he goes on some. There's, uh, he, he talks a little bit about the, the, the final phrase of the poem, which is, I find baffling still. It, it is a, it, I'll say it is an idea that has long interested me. The idea that uh, it's an ancient Greek idea, as far as I know, that, the, that nature is regenerative. That is, nature always comes back the same. And the gods are eternal. That is, they, they always remain as they are. And so it's man alone who is truly mortal. That is, man lives an individual life, ages, weakens, and dies, and does not, does not return. So there, there is... Insofar as I think Varun is echoing some of this, Varun and, and possibly Emily Dickinson as well, though God only knows, is echoing some of this idea. I am a, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated. I mean, I, I've, I've always, I've, I found that a very, very moving idea and one that has inspired a lot of good poetry. I, I have a lot of trouble with this poem. A lot of trouble. I mean, I'll. I will, um, I'll read you the version Varun linked to, which is, as, as far as I know, it's the final version that she, she put out. Emily Dickinson's poems were, uh, of course, you know, saved in a number of different versions. And, and uh, scholars do quibble sometimes about, about which, which one is the, the final or official one. But, but this is, I believe, the final official version of poem 895. Further in summer than the birds... Pathetic from the grass, a minor nation celebrates its unobtrusive mass. No ordinance be seen, so gradual the grace. A gentle custom it becomes, enlarging loneliness. Antiquest felt at noon, when, 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 August, when August burning low, arise this spectral canticle, repose to typify. Remit as yet no grace, no furrow on the glow, but a druidic difference enhances nature now. The druidic difference is the the, the phrase that Varun returns to a, a few times in his very smart email that goes on at, at um, a, a little more length than I, than I will read here. Boy, that is just opaque as all get out to me. I mean, man, uh, the, the, the other version that I found online that makes a little bit more immediate sense, I think a little, though not totally a lot, uh, I'll just very, very quickly read. This is 
Further in summer than the birds, pathetic from the grass, a minor nation celebrates its unobtrusive mass. No ordinance be seen, so gradual the grace, a pensive custom it becomes enlarging loneliness. Tis audiblest at dusk. Tis audiblest sounds so much worse than antiquest felt at noon, but it's uh, but it makes a lot more sense. Tis audiblest at dusk when day's attempt is done and nature nothing waits to do but terminate in tune, nor difference it knows of cadence or of pause, but simultaneous as same, the service emphasize. Nor know I when it cease, at candles it is here. When sunrise is, that is it not. Then is, then this I know no more. So that, I mean, just that right there, no, nor know I when it cease. As long as we know it is the music of the crickets, then this makes a lot of sense. Nor know I when it cease, at candles it is here. When we're lighting the candles at that time of day, it is here. When sunrise is, that it is not. By the time the sun rises, it's gone. Then this, I know no more. And then I think quite a lovely ending in this original. The earth has many keys where melody is not. Is the unknown peninsula beauty is nature's fact. But witness for her land and witness for her sea, the cricket is her utmost of elegy to me. The cricket is her utmost of elegy to me. Boy, that is, that's beautiful. Boy, she cut, and she cut that out of the, the final one. I'm not sure why the cricket is her utmost of elegy to me. And that's, she, she revised it to the much more taut and, I mean, to my ear and eye, baffling version that, that Varun sent along. And I, uh, Varun seems able to read it quite well. I, I don't doubt that many, many people, certainly smarter than I am, can can get uh can get get good use out of it other than admiring the sound which i do antiquest felt at noon can't say what that means but boy it sounds great i'm at a loss. i mean i'm really lost really lost here i mean i, I feel the way uh, uh alice's um <laughs> alice's um, uh incalculably nice and curious Australian friends feel when they say, Alice, explain poetry to me. That's how I feel when I read this fucking poem. I, I think part of it, for me, has to do with this question of voice. This is something I've been worrying about and thinking about for a while. I, I, I Maybe I will, will cover it in some more depth soon-ish, but it's been on my mind because Cameron recommended the poems of Jay Wright, and I've been looking at them. And, you know, it's only 50 years of extremely prolific poetry, an extremely prolific writer. Uh, so, you know, I'm making a slow progress leafing through some of that. But I started by looking at most, some of his most recent poems, I mean, his most recent collection. And it's like a brick wall. I mean, it's super smart. It's clearly incredibly well, carefully, thoughtfully made but the trouble I have with it is that I cannot, for the life of me, hear a voice speaking it. And I have a little bit of that trouble with this poem. I have the same trouble with a lot of Wallace Stevens. I have the same trouble with Hart Crane. I have the same trouble with some Eliot. I, I have a hard time hearing a voice speaking it. And if I can't hear a voice speaking it, even just in my head, then I really can't comprehend it. I can't you know, I, I'm like I'm not, my mind isn't a Turing machine. I can't just add up the components and uh, run them through the filter of syntax and, and extract a denotation. I mean, I can't, 
I really I realize it's a it's a I think it's a limitation of, of myself as a reader, but I can't understand something unless I can hear a human being saying it. And that's the trouble I have with a lot of what people call difficult poetry. Jeffrey Hill, I have the same trouble. Shane recommended this really, really smart poet a while ago who was writing a, a poem, a long poem that was sort of a, a revision of the of the Inferno. I, I just found some poems of his online. I had exactly this problem. I could, I could see these are really well made. These are really thoughtfully made. The guy who did this is very smart. I can't fucking understand it because I can't hear a voice saying it. So I don't have a completed thought there, but it is something I've returned to and, and I think I will continue to return to because it's, it seems like maybe there's something, there's, there's something there if only a notch in which to wedge uh, the crowbar of uh, some conversation, pre preferably with somebody smarter than me. So uh, very briefly, um, Varun's very nice email ends, this email turned out a lot, this email turned out a lot longer and ramblier than I anticipated. I originally wanted to simply and impishly point out that perhaps the reason her first lines, as Emily Dickinson's first lines, are so popular is because she didn't title the damn poems. <laughs> An incredibly uh, obvious uh, observation that that uh, it, uh, I, it totally didn't occur to me when I was when I was uh, uh, giving my spiel about Emily Dickinson's composition of first lines, and it's it's definitely a, a fair point. <laughs> Surely, part of the reason we know so many Emily Dickinson poems by their first lines is that she she didn't title them. So otherwise, we just have numbers. Uh, so I think that's that's fair, and that certainly accounts for some of that phenomenon. I'll, I'll just say in, in defense of my own uh, uh, half-baked uh, claims in, in a previous episode, I, I think that uh, the, thing, the thing about Emily Dickinson's first lines is that unlike the first lines of some other poets who, who, who uh, often didn't name their poems or who named them simply after the first lines, I'm thinking um, Hausman's Loveliest of Trees, the Cherry Now, or Shakespeare's uh, Like as the Waves Make Towards the Pebbled Shore, or, uh, Ke as I mentioned uh, the other week, Keats's uh, poem, When I Have Fears That I May Cease to Be. So uh, unlike some of these other poems that also are known by their first lines, or by a number, Emily, Dickinson po Emily Dickinson's first line slash titles My Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun, I Heard a Fly Buzz When I Died, Hope is the Thing with Feathers, after great pain, a formal feeling comes. The, the big difference, I think, is that the is that her is that the, the poems of these other poets bring more and more meaning to those first lines as they go along. Where the first line might be a little bit flat or incomplete or uncertain sounding, but it comes to be more powerful by the time you get through the poem. That is, the poem uh, delivers its effect as a whole. With Dickinson's poems, I, I tend to think that hope is the thing with feathers doesn't ever really make that much more sense than it makes when you first hear it. Um, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. I mean, the, the rest of that poem is really just an elaboration on that initial 
assertion that on that initial imperative. I think that, that she just had this knack for laying down a killer first line, but then a lot of the rest of the poems tend to be riffs on this already established beginning. So I think of her poems the same way I think of the old, the rule you hear about uh, journalists, which is that, that they're their stories are supposed to have the reverse pyramid structure where the first sentence is supposed to deliver like 70% of the value of the, the, uh, of the article. The idea being that, you know, if you, the very last sentence might be one where you sort of provide one final nice detail, but for the most part, you're writing the, the article, uh, such that somebody might stop after the headline, stop after the first line, stop after the first few lines, and, and get almost everything that he needs to get. So I, I think Emily Dickinson's poems tend to work in, in sort of this way. That, that's at least my, that is what I was thinking. Um, I clearly was not remembering that she didn't title the damn poems, but thank you, Varun. I do hope uh, you are still listening and I'd love to hear more from you the next time I say something, <laughs> something stupid. Or if you wanna further illuminate any particularly opaque poems. I would also appreciate that. So speaking of news, speaking of journalism, there was some, <laughs> there was some, some uh, mainstream coverage of poetry uh, this, this past week. Uh, not, not great coverage, but coverage nonetheless. Uh, I'll start with the dumbest. <laughs> uh, there, there was an, there was an article in CNN style on the website, CNN.com. There was a, a, a you know decent sized article. Poetry is experiencing a new golden age with young writers of color taking the lead. This is um, uh, October eighteenth. In the the, uh, the uh, author was Leah Asmalash. So this could have been a good article, right? There is definitely a thing to write about here that's that's worth writing about. Um, poetry is experiencing a new golden age with young writers of color taking the lead. I mean, those are two two big, big things. And they're both things that, I mean, there's, this, this is not nonsense at all. Uh, you can argue about what golden age means. I think, I think mostly, mostly what the, the author sort of suggests it means here is, has to do with, uh, uh, traffic and quantity, you know, uh, um, the, the busyness and popularity of poetry. And that's fair. You know, uh, if you're if you're a William Logan fan, he I think likes to call this era in poetry the 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 age of tin. But he's a grouch, so I'm not I'm not worried about that. I don't I don't especially think this is a new golden age in the sense that the greatest poetry of all time is being written today. You know, chances are it's not. But I, I don't I don't really take um, great issue with with the 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 casual use of the the expression a new golden age. Uh, with young writers of color taking the lead. Again, a lot to talk about there. And she does talk about some some stuff that's not nonsense. I mean, so like most substantially she talks about, uh, there, there's a little bit of a conflation as one, you know, expects, which is that, she, you know, there's a conflation among like three or four categories of success. They're sort of all treated roughly as the same kind of thing. One being uh, obviously popular success, another being critical success, a third being what I think of as uh, institutional success. 
that is the the approval by existing institutions or acceptance by existing institutions, which is slightly different than critical, slightly different than popular success. And then the fourth, obviously, being artistic success, which which really doesn't get brought up much at all. And she so she 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 mentions uh, uh, you know Amanda Gorman's extremely popular emergence as a as a poet, the the uh, res, re, the um, awarding of three genius grants this year uh, to three poets of color, uh, Hanif Abdurraqib. Don Mee Choi and Reginald Dwayne Betts. There's an, a number of other, you know, uh, examples, large and small. Taya Hemajess winning the Pulitzer Prize. Ada Limone, you know, hosting a bunch of podcasts and and winning prizes. And, and um, she won. Oh, she won the National Book Critics Circle Award. I, I, I've forgotten about that. So there's um uh, and obviously Ocean Vuong um, making his victory tour of the entire uh, country's uh, media apparatus. So all of this is fine. And, and, and that's, that's you know, there's, again, there's nothing really to, to argue with there. She also, I think, makes the point I'm grateful for, which is that this is not just a question of poetry being produced. This is also a question of poetry being uh, uh, received. So she does say that that there is uh, um, a, there's a, great, a greater number proportionally of readers of color for, for poetry um, in this country. So all, all fine, all great, all to the good. The, the trouble, I think, is really just that what's very clear is that the, the, her primary source for this, for this article was, was a single like, phone conversation she, she had with Ada Lamone where she was like, taking notes on a scrap of paper and, and sort of, you know, got, got a few things a little, a little, a little bit muddled, let's say. Uh, most readers don't have to know the reference points of a Shakespearean sonnet to appreciate a contemporary sonnet by Terence Hayes. But in the past, Lamone said, there may have been literary references or language within the poem that kept our poems for poets. Again, I, I don't, I have no, uh, no quarrel with uh, Ada Lamone. God knows what she actually said, but uh, this is gobbledygook. I mean, I think the, the 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 fairer and truer thing to say is some people find it hard to read Shakespeare today, but they might find it easier to read Terence Hayes, who also writes sonnets. That's a that's that's true. Boy, that's that's a thing you could say. But I, I you know I, I I pick on this on this journalist and this article in part because what what becomes pretty clear as you read it as you go on is that uh, this is not really an article about poetry. And it's not even really an article about poets of color or, or, or poets of any description. It's really an article about prestige. And even more than that, it is an article, I would argue, about itself. I mean, there is, in 1,800 words, over 1,800 words, there is literally, this is on a golden age of poetry, there is in this article literally not a single word of poetry. It's not one word from one poem quoted in the entire article. Not only that, <laughs> there's not even a single poem named. She does not name a single poem in the entire article. She names a lot of grants. She names a lot of, uh, she, she talks about the Met Gala. She talks about uh, some prestigious residencies at the Lincoln Center. Uh, she she talks about some prizes and there are photos of poets appearing on uh, television shows, but uh, nowhere is there a single word of poetry or the title of a single poem. In fact, the only poem that is alluded to, the only specific poem that is ever even referred to obliquely in this entire article is Amanda Gorman's 
uh, poem for Biden's inauguration, which great. And it made a big splash. We talked about it already on the show. And, and again, I have certainly have no beef with Amanda Gorman. But even this poem, which is not named nor quoted, but is only referred to, alluded to, it is alluded to only in the subordinate clause of a sentence, the predicate of which is inked a modeling contract. So, so this is this is really this has nothing to do with poetry. And and I, you know when I read an article like this, which again there is a version of this article that's great. There's a version of this article that's totally worth writing. It's totally worth reading. Poetry is an experience. Poetry is experiencing a new golden age with young writers of color taking the lead. That could be the real live headline of a real live article that would really be worth reading. But this is not that article. And and just. Uh, for for those of you who might not be familiar with the way poetry tends to get covered in the popular press, I'll, I'll translate for you the actual uh, meaning of this headline. If you if you put your they live goggles on, uh, what it actually says is not poetry is experiencing a new golden age with young writers of color taking the lead. What it actually says is reporting on poetry emerges as a new way to get retweets because that is what it's actually about. Moving on to, to a much uh, much smarter, but still somewhat laughable piece of writing on poetry, uh, Alyssa Gabbard, good, good old Daffy Alyssa Gabbard, has a, a column in the book review. She is the New York Times poetry columnist. Uh, her column is this week is um, Louise Gluck's stark new book affirms her icy precision. When I say her column this week, she does not do a column every week. She does a column every two weeks, three weeks, month, who knows, but not every week. Louise Gluck's stark new book affirms her icy precision. Not, by the way, what is said in this article, <laughs> in, in large or even specifically. It's so, so if you're writing an article on poetry and the void, then boy, you, you have to be doing something wrong if you haven't won me over because everything about this piece should appeal. I'm not a big fan of Louise Gluck's, but I, I like her all right. I, I, I admire some of her poems. I've reviewed her work in the past. She's a, she's a poet worth reading, worth thinking about, worth talking about. And there's some, there's some worthwhile stuff in this column. First of all, I mean, one thing I appreciate about, uh, about Gabbert, I have to give her credit, she quotes the shit out of Glick's poetry. There's just a ton of lines of poetry quoted here, many of them pretty good lines. There is no such thing as death in miniature. When a man's dying, he has a subject. That's, that's good. As well as just some sort of, sort of silly, funny stuff. I prayed for relief from suffering. I received suffering. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's great. And so she quotes, she quotes Glick, you know, you get it. You get a big, big star, big points over CNN.com uh, just for doing that. But this is ostensibly a column about Louise Gluck's new book. She has a new book coming out. This is a 1,200 word column. Less than one fourth of it, less than 25 percent, is dedicated to the actual book being theoretically reviewed. Now she talks. Uh, most of it is a sort of a list of some nice lines of Glicks and sort of a, a sort of a preoccupation. Really, she, she she suggests it's a preoccupation of Glicks. I think it, I think it's mostly a preoccupation of Alyssa Gabbert's this uh, death and the void. I mean, the th the thing about Gabbert, which is both what makes her maddening to read and what makes her occasionally delightful to read, is that she she seemingly has no perspective on like where her own 
diary ends and where the review begins, where the column begins. So there's some, I mean, they're just thrown in throughout this piece. Are these sort of weird moments of confession or like personal uh, uh, speculation or even like, it's almost like Gabbard is trying out lines of poems in her own review. At the time, she's talking about when she first encountered Glick's poetry. At the time, I was attracted to playfulness, irreverence, anti-poetry. Why, why are you telling us this? Now that I'm older, have suffered more, and realize my life is likely more than half over, it's her seriousness, her coldness that appeals. Again, good, fine, but let's talk about Glick's poems. Let's talk about her book. Let's go back to the book. Some days, this is, this is amazing, some days, and in the dark intervals between days, it seems to me that Glick's preoccupations are what poetry is for. Let's just read that again. <laughs> Some days, and in the dark intervals between days. Nights! Nights! Some days and nights, it seems to me. If we're... <laughs> She goes, I mean, she doesn't, she's just talking about herself. She's talking about her own existential crisis, which is fine, which is great, all right. But this is the New York Times poetry columnist. We, we only get one New York Times poetry columnist. We only get a poetry column every two weeks or so. <laughs> she goes on. If we're on a moving walkway approaching the void, what? <laughs> Are we? If we're on a moving walkway approaching the void, we can ignore it, avoid all thoughts of it for only so long. Well, that's true. If you were on if you were on a moving walkway approaching the void, there would be a point at which you would have to say, gosh, I guess this moving walkway is about to fall into the void. But yeah, again, I thought this was a column about Louise Gluck's newest book of poetry. The the beauty, the the je ne sais quoi of uh, of Alyssa Gabbard's criticism is these little little intervening lines. <laughs> the ancient Romans believed it was the entrance to the underworld, or the other world, as it is sometimes known. Is it? Is it sometimes known as the other world? I don't know that I've ever really heard that before. Even so, why did we need to hear that here? Is there an other world that appears somewhere in one of these poems? No, just just a thought that Alyssa had for us. The ancient Romans believed it was the entrance to the underworld or the other world, as it is sometimes known. In my imagination, in my dream diary, she goes, there's so many little wonderful... Oh, here, here, this is this is so great. She's, you know, she's quoting line after line after line. Some good lines. She's quoting some great lines. Uh, in October... Um, this is, these are not the best lines, but she quotes some lines from a poem called October. And then she says, her voice in these poems is dazzlingly, thrillingly cold, period. That's where she should stop. Stop there, move on to the next quotation. But she doesn't stop there because this is Alyssa Gabbard. Her voice in these poems is dazzlingly, thrillingly cold, like the coldness of nights we call glittering. Glittering is in italics. Why, why, why is it in italics? Why is it there at all? Or, she's because she's not done, or the coldness that drops in a total eclipse, as if God has revoked sunlight. What What are we talking about? What has happened to Louise Gluck's poems? She goes on, uh, <laughs> quoting, quoting Gluck saying, this is my mind's voice, you can't touch my body now. The voice of a soul between worlds. Why? Who? What? Who's the voice of a soul between worlds? That's just Gabbert throwing in a line of her own made-up poetry into the middle of this review. She talks about Charles Wright, there's a little bit of sloppiness there, but that's fine. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Um, lots of more silence in Glick. Some good lines about silence. Concerning death, this is pretty good. This is all Glick, by the way. Concerning death, one might observe that those with authority to speak remain silent. That's that's a pretty good, like, uh, Mitch Hedberg line. You know, I like that. I like that one. She goes on to talk about Faithful and Virtuous Night, the National Book Award-winning Faithful and Virtuous Night. I mean, 
again, I, I like Louise Gluck fine. I, I reviewed Faithful, Faithful and Virtuous Night, and it's a fine book. You know, it's not, uh, it, it was not, and I don't think anybody thought it was the best book of that year in poetry. I, I don't think, I mean, it was, I think, I think pretty much everybody understands that that was, that it was just her turn to win the National Book Award. And that's why she won for that book because, because, you know, maybe probably she should have won for some other book, uh, but it was somebody else's turn at the time. So she won for this, not, not the best, but fine book, Faithful and Virtuous Night. She goes on to quote, she quotes a lot from that book. And this is maybe my favorite. So, Again, I mean, she has to elaborate on anything she reads from, on anything she quotes from Gleick. She Again, she doesn't interpret, she doesn't uh, comment, she doesn't characterize, she just elaborates. It's like she's like writing a paraphrase of the poem, of the line she's just read. Um, here's Glick saying, something I was sure opposed the lungs, possibly a death wish. I used the word soul as a compromise, end quote. And then Gabbert picks up there <laughs> with, with a longer passage than the passage she was quoting. These lines suggest Timor Mortis is all in the body. The spirit seeks relief in the silence of death. I remember a night like this in my own life, when I was five or six. I frightened my parents because the cause of my silence was itself ineffable. What are you talking about? What happened? Where did we go? Why are you five or six? Why are you talk frightening your parents? What, what in God's name is going on? And then, and then in the next paragraph, she has this she has this little wonderful moment. And this is why I think Alyssa Gabbard is not really a ninny. I think she's not She's not a fraud. I mean, I, I will tell you this. Alyssa Gabbard means every goddamn word she says. This is a sincere and dedicated, uh, I hesitate to call her poetry critic, call her poetry critic, poetry columnist, who believes what she says and who genuinely loves poetry. So I, will, I would not question that for a minute. And then she, so she has these little moments that are sort of wonderful. So I, I think, I think rather than saying she is a nincompoop or uh, just a, a a big silly goose, uh, I think she's kind of an idiot savant because she she says Glick has often drawn on mythology, a way of supplementing one's life material. So mythology can can bring you know gives you something else to write about other than your your own life. But then she follows that up with an elaboration that is actually elaborate that actually helps us make more sense rather than just the same or less sense of what she just said. She goes on to say, you may need just a touch of your own pain or memory to breathe life into the old familiar myth. That's a wonderful description of contemporary writing about ancient myth. Quincy Lear has, has, has complained for years about what he calls the canon poem, which is sort of uh, uh, resuscitating some fragment of uh, antiquity or, or, uh, or ancient myth and uh, dusting it off and sort of coughing some, some living breath into it. And uh, Gabbert here has, has very elegantly identified what I think is, is really the key. The key is that that you you shouldn't just be using this ancient myth as a as a vehicle for your own private tenor, and you shouldn't be uh, dusting it off just for the sake of dusting it off. You may need just a touch of your own pain or memory to breathe life into the old familiar myth. It's like the the drop of blood that you have to draw in order to awaken the old magic. That it's not the myth that allows you to talk about yourself. You are the occasion for the myth to come back to life. I think that's quite wonderful. 
totally disconnected from the rest of the column and uh and she sinks immediately from that back to uh her her private gabbertian ruminations as i said it is only uh it is only the last 300 words of this essay of this column that actually concern the poem the the book of poems uh being presumably reviewed in fact not even the last 300 words because the last three sentences or the, or the last so the last sentence she said she has to say the last thing she has to say about this new book is the book is full of echoes of her earlier work <laughs> it's winds it's winds in parenthesis the breath of the void close parenthesis and silence oh it's winds and silence it's winds Parenthesis, the breath of the void, close parenthesis, and silence. Why? What is it? What is any of that doing? Why is it here at all? And then the last three sentences, or so, the, sorry, the, the last two sentences with uh, each of which contains a quotation are about other books. She goes back at the end of the column about Glick's new book to quote previous books. It returns me to Echoes. The silence is my companion now. The rest I have told you already. It returns me to Cornwall from Faithful and Virtuous Night. That same fucking book. I shut my book. It was all behind me, all in the past. Ahead, as I have said, was silence. Ahead, as I have said, was silence being probably the most memorable line from Faithful and Virtuous Night, the book that she wrote in 2014 and not the book that she wrote that is coming out today. Now, again, I have nothing uh, um, against Louise Gluck, and I certainly have not read Winter Recipes from the Collective, which is her new collection. Winter Recipes from the Collective, not a great title. Not a great title, I have to say. Uh, but as Gabbert notes, this is a short book. It's a short book. It only has 15 poems. Some of those are multi-page poems, but 15 poems is not a lot. And Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux lists this book at 45 pages. And when the publisher lists it at 45 pages, that tells you, you know, you've got maybe 30 pages of actual content there. So again, this could be a masterpiece. This could be a brilliant book, but my what i induce what i suspect what based on my own experience writing reviews i would glean from the fact that gabbert gave less than a fourth of this piece to the actual book in question is that she doesn't think it's very good and yet she didn't want to bash it she didn't want to say something bad about it so she chose to talk about something else. If you don't have anything nice to say, change the fucking subject. So she changed the subject. She talked about some of Gluck's other books that she does like, and fair enough. And I wouldn't have her take down Louise Gluck's most recent book. It, it doesn't, that, no, that's fine. I understand not wanting to say something bad about her. Maybe she has a relationship with Gluck. Maybe she's just a fan, whatever. But there's a very simple solution. There's an incredibly, incredibly easy, obvious simple solution to this problem if you read the most recent book it's very short it's not very good and you don't want to write a rad, bad review the solution is write about something else write about anything else write about any other of the thousands of books of poetry that comes out a year just just do something else it's your column you are the new york times poetry columnist Alyssa gabbert you can write about anything you fucking want just write about something else and, you know, maybe this time uh, try to stick to poetry and not, <laughs> and not your own uh, fascinating, fascinating, mysterious, uh, intellectual uh, autobiography. And you're 
and that long strange night when you scared your parents all right the i'll just briefly say that the the you know the the new york times did happen to publish a a a smart and positive review of an excellent collection by a brilliant poet this week uh, the only problem was that it was written by a huge fucking racist <laughs> i mean maybe he's not a huge racist maybe he's just like a a racist racist but this is they, they've been doing this thing where they're they're um drawing from the the archives and reprinting old reviews so this was uh the 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 new york times review of county cullen's first book which was called color came out in 1925 and it got a positive review i mean it got a review that i'm sure at the time he was thrilled about it it definitely <laughs> it, de- it definitely has some real uh, uh uncomfortable uh, uh, moments of racial observation. I mean, I think the guy says, uh, he makes a point of, as he's closing, he says, Mr. Cullen is race conscious. And many of his poems are imbued with a somewhat bitter note. I wonder fucking why. I mean, <laughs> I wonder why. And then earlier and sort of more grossly, he says, it would be easy to overpraise him for it is not often that men of his blood reveal so deep and so modern a sensitivity to the poetic urge. So his excellence stands out all the more vividly. I mean, uh, so that's not that's not great. And then, unfortunately, he he also says some other I think smart things about poetry uh, because of the context. I suspect that he says some of them in a shitty racist way or for shitty racist reasons. He praises Cullen quite highly. He also says. He still has some distance to go before he reaches any particularly high eminence as a poet. But what he has accomplished in color leads to the suspicion that if he is not spoiled by over-adulation during these early years, he will produce distinguished and lasting work. I mean, that, that's great. I mean, that's exactly what we should be telling young poets. That's like, I, I hope if you, first of all, poets should not read reviews. I've said this before. Poets don't read reviews. Don't read them. Don't read them. But if poets are going to read reviews, and they are, we should be saying that to them. Now, again, unfortunately, I think this guy, what's his name? Uh, Herbert S. Gorman. He was, I know, I I did look him up. He was a a poet and novelist, I think, himself. I suspect that he's saying this about County Cullen because County Cullen is black, and that sucks. Uh, but, But we should be saying about all young poets who are promising. We should be saying, let's not spoil them with overadulation. Let's not tell them that they're already completely finished being geniuses let's let them know they have a ways to go and i mean in this book it is amazing he, he notes that all of these poems in color were written before before cullen turned 22 uh which is just sickening he then go, he, he lists a bunch of um cullen's prizes cullen did get recognized pretty early on as a poetic talent and then gorman he says all this of course really means but little as far as poetry is concerned for prize poems are for the most part bad poems it is to the work in color that one must turn to find whether or not Mr. Cullen is a really inspired poet. That's, again, fucking great. That's great. That's right. Of course, hard to give you the benefit of the doubt on this one, Gorman, because it really seems like you might be saying this uh, because he's black again. But we should be saying that in general. Prize poems are, for the most part, bad poems. And one should look to the work itself to determine uh, quality. He he includes a couple of Cullen does this uh, series of uh, epitaphs. It's sort of like um, reminds me of like Thomas Hardy. Thomas Hardy does some epi- epitaphs. He also does the um, satires of circumstance. And Cullen has some poems that that seem to be 
uh, nodding to those. He has he has a pretty fucking good one here called For a Lady I Know. It goes, she even thinks that up in heaven, her class lies late and snores, while poor black cherubs rise at seven to do celestial chores. I mean, that's... That's, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty sharp. I mean, I mean, that may be uh, Cullen's, you know, epitaph on an army of mercenaries. That's, that's, that's pretty good. She even thinks that up in heaven, her class lies late and snores while poor black cherubs rise at seven to do celestial chores. There's just something wonderfully um, restrained about that. It's just brutal. And, you know, and Gorman, Gorman finishes by saying, there is much that is arresting here, love poems that are sensitive and compelling and faint satire, is, faint, faint satire that is unmistakably piercing. Here is a poet to be watched. Again, boy, this would have been such a terrific review if you just took the weird race stuff out. But uh, again, we should be saying this to all, uh, all of our good young poets. We should be saying, first of all, you're young. Second, don't trust praise. And third, uh, don't trust prizes, right? Keep keep at it, but don't simply keep doing what you've been doing. I do love I do love County Cullen. So both good to see him recognized again, and bad to see him uh, recognized in this weird uh, race coded way. Not even race coded. Sorry, it's not, it's not even coded at this point. It's nineteen twenty five. It's just it's just just openly, casually, genteely racist. Maybe I'll do, maybe I will do one, uh, yeah, I'll read a poem. Let's, yeah, let's just read a poem and then call it a day. So this is a poem I, I, I just, I've been going through um, Dunbar and I found this little, little odd poem from his first collection that I like a lot. And that is, he, he wrote a fair amount of religious poetry. Some of it is, is pretty Bible thumping. Some of it is pretty sentimental. He, he could be real sentimental when he, when he felt like it. But this is one I just find to be incredibly bracing and moving and understated. It's really humble. So uh, this is a poem called The Mystery. It originally appeared in Lyrics of Lowly Life. I can't help but think that there's some, some little nod there to lyrical ballads, particularly given Wordsworth's obsession with, and Coleridge's obsession with capturing the voice of everyday life and of common workers. Lyrics of lowly life. It's not a bad name for a collection. So this is, uh, this, this poem is just called The Mystery by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So I'll, I'll just read it, say a word or two, and then call it a day. The Mystery. I was not. Now I am. A few days hence I shall not be. I fain would look before and after, but can neither do. Some power or lack of power says no to all I would. I stand upon a wide and sunless plain, nor chart nor steel to guide my steps aright. When air or coming fear I dare to move, I grope without direction and by chance. Some feign to hear a voice and feel a hand that draws them ever upward through the gloom. But I, I hear no voice and touch no hand, though oft through silence infinite I list and strain my hearing to supernal sounds, though oft through fateful darkness do I reach and stretch my hand to find that other hand. I question 
of the eternal bending skies that seem to neighbor with the novice earth. But they roll on and daily shut their eyes on me, as I one day shall do on them. And tell me not the secret that I ask. Man, it's just, it's just so controlled. I mean, the emotion, the language, it's all just wonderfully controlled and still really poignant. I also, I, I, I mean, there's such a great map here. I think of poems that came before and after. Um, I definitely, uh, of course, in, in that image of the, the stretching the hand out to, to reach the other hand, I can't help but think of Virgil's, you know, the hands extended to, to you know, toward the farther shore or... Um, I stand upon a wide and sunless plain. Obviously, I, you know, I think of, um, and here we are as on a darkling plain from uh, Dover Beach. And then I think that, uh, you know, who knows, but uh, I question of the eternal bending skies that seem to neighbor with the novice earth, but they roll on. That, that The eternal bending skies that roll on, I, you know, in a poem like this at about that spot, about that length in uh, Larkin's High Windows, we reach the sun comprehending glass and beyond it, the deep blue air that shows nothing and is nowhere and is endless. You know, probably not related, but seems like maybe, yeah, it is, it's exactly the same length as this poem. seems like maybe a little uh, kindred kindred influence, as well as um, in Auden's, you know, I, I hear Auden's The More Loving One, right? Admirer as I think I am of stars that do not give a damn. And that sounds very much drawn from uh, from this one. And it's a, you know, it, it's a so subtle, quiet form. It's just blank verse. But early on, before we know exactly what the form is going to be, before we know what we're listening to, that second and third line, before and power, or, you know, have that, uh, that strong consonant rhyme, that, that near rhyme. And there are little moments throughout. Hand, the word hand ends three separate lines. There's a lot of repetition within the lines. And, uh, you know, toward the end, skies and eyes end, end lines close together and in a way that, that keeps suggesting, it keeps sort of tantalizing us with the suggestion that there will be some, some match, some solution, some answer, some, some, some response. Uh, but there never is. The last word of the poem is ask. That question is still open-ended. So I'll just read it one more time and then say good night. This is The Mystery by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Oh, shit, did I not tell you who it was by before? I can't remember. Paul Ernst Dunbar. For, fuck. So that's who it's by. This is the, the, um, the poet uh, Method Man was talking about in, in Patterson. This is The Mystery by Paul Ernst Dunbar. I was not. Now I am. A few days hence I shall not be. I fain would look before and after, but can neither do. Some power or lack of power says No to all I would. I stand upon a wide and sunless plain, nor chart nor steel to guide my steps aright. Whene'er or coming fear I dare to move, I grope without direction and by chance. Some feign to hear a voice and feel a hand that draws them ever upward through the gloom. But I, I hear no voice and touch no hand. Though oft through silence infinite I list, and strain my hearing to supernal sounds, though oft through fateful darkness do I reach and stretch my hand to find that other hand. I question of the eternal bending skies that seem to neighbor with the novice earth, but they roll on, 
and daily shut their eyes on me, as I one day shall do on them. And tell me not the secret that I ask. That was The Mystery by Paul Lawrence Dunbar from Lyrics of Lowly Life, which was published in 1896. And this is Sleericats. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can reach me at, as always, you can reach me as always at sleevericketts at gmail.com. Oh, very quickly, I will, coming up in a week or two, or two, two weeks or so, I'm going to be talking with Brian Platzer about Sam Rivieri's novel, Dead Souls, which is all about poetry. It is a very gossipy poetry novel. Uh, pretty fun so far. You know, I'm, I'm like not quite halfway in, but uh, we will be talking about that in a couple weeks. And also, possibly, we'll see, but... Theoretically, I'm going to be discussing the new HBO adaptation of Scenes from a Marriage with my own dear wife, <laughs> assuming we're still married uh, by the time we reach the end of the series. Uh, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's um, I, you know, I want, I don't know if I recommend it or not. It's well, it's, I will say it's well done. It's very well done. It is, of course, an homage to uh, Ingmar Bergman's 1973 series of the same name. Uh, the stat series is very hard to find streaming anywhere, but, uh, but HBO has the movie adaptation, which is, which is significantly shorter of, of Bergman's original. So we will be talking about that scenes from a marriage, as well as dead souls, uh, uh, in a, in, in a couple few weeks coming up. Thank you all for listening. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon until then. (laughs) 